Chapter 7 of Zadig. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Nicholas James Bridgewater. The misfortunes that attended Zadig proceeded, in a great measure, from his preferment, but more from his intrinsic merit. Every day he had familiar converse with the king, his royal master, and his august consort, Estarte, and the pleasure arising from thence was greatly enhanced from an innate ambition of pleasing, which, in regard to wit, is the same as dresses to beauty. His youth and graceful deportment had a greater influence on Astarte than she was at first aware of. Though her affection for him daily increased, yet she was perfectly innocent. Astarte would say, without the least reserve or apprehension of fear, that she was extremely pleased with the company of one, who was not only a favourite of her husband, but the darling of the whole empire. She was continually speaking in his commendation before the king. He was the subject of her whole discourse amongst her ladies of honour, who were as lavish of their praises as herself. Such repeated discourses, however innocent, made a deeper impression on her heart than she at that time apprehended. She would every now and then send Zadig some little present or another, which she construed as the result of a greater value for him than she intended. She said no more of him, as she thought, than a queen might innocently do who was perfectly assured of his attachment to her husband. Sometimes, indeed, she would express herself with an air of tenderness and affection. Astarte was much handsomer than either his mistress Samira, who had such a natural antipathy to a one-eyed lord, or Azora, his late loving spouse, that would innocently have cut his nose off. The freedoms which Astarte took, her tender expressions, at which she began to blush, the glances of her eye, which she would turn away if perceived, and which she fixed upon his, kindled in the heart of Zadig a fire, which struck him with amazement. He did all he could to smother it. He called up all the philosophy he was master of to his aid, but all in vain, for no consolation arose from those reflections. Duty, gratitude, and an injured monarch presented themselves before his eyes as avenging deities. He bravely struggled, he triumphed indeed, but this conquest over his passions, which he was obliged to check every moment, cost him many a deep sigh and tear. He durst not talk with the queen any more, with that freedom which was too engaging on both sides. His eyes were obnubilated. His discourse was forced and unconnected. He turned his eyes another way, and when, against his inclination, they met with those of the queen, he found that though drowned in tears, they darted flames of fire. They seemed in silence to intimate that they were afraid of being in love with each other, and that both burned with a fire which both condemned. Zadig flew from her presence like one beside himself, and in despair his heart was overcharged with a burthen too great for him to bear. 
In the heat of his conflicts he disclosed the secrets of his heart to his trusty friend Kador, as one who, having long groaned under the weight of an inexpressible anguish of mind, at once makes known the cause of his torments, by the groans, as it were, extorted from him, and by the drops of a cold sweat that trickled down his cheeks. Kador said to him, "'Tis now some considerable time since I have discovered that secret passion which you have fostered in your bosom, and yet endeavoured to conceal even from yourself. The passions carry along with them such strong impressions that they cannot be concealed. Tell me ingenuously, Zadig, and be your own accuser, whether or no, since I have made this discovery, the king has not shown some visible marks of his resentment. He has no other foible but that of being the most jealous mortal breathing. You take more pains to check the violence of your passion than the queen herself does, because you are a philosopher, because, in short, you are Zadig. Astarte is but a weak woman, and though her eyes speak too visibly, and with too much imprudence, yet she does not think herself blameworthy. Being conscious of her innocence to her own misfortune, as well as yours, she is too unguarded. I tremble for her, because I am sensible her conscience acquits her. Were you both agreed, you might conceal your regard for each other from all the world. A rising passion that is smothered breaks out into a flame. Love, when once gratified, knows how to conceal itself with art. Zadig shuddered at the proposition of ungratefully violating the bed of his royal benefactor and never was there a more loyal subject to a prince, though guilty, of an involuntary crime. The queen, however, repeated the name of Zadig so often, and her cheeks glowed with such a red whenever she uttered it. She was one while so transported, and at another so dejected, when the discourse turned upon him in the king's presence. She was in such a reverie, so confused and stupid, when he went out of the presence, that her deportment made the king extremely uneasy. He was convinced of everything he saw, and formed in his mind an idea of a thousand things he did not see. He observed particularly that Astarte's sandals were blue, so Zadig's were blue likewise, that as the queen wore yellow ribbons, Zadig's turbot was of the same colour. These were shocking circumstances for a monarch of his cast of mind to reflect on, to a mind, in short, so distempered as his was, suspicions were converted into real facts. All court slaves and sycophants are so many spies on kings and queens. They soon discovered that Astarte was fond, and Moabdar jealous. Arimazius, his envious foe, who was as incorrigible as ever, for flints will never soften, and creatures that are by nature venomous forever retain their poison. Arimazius, I say, wrote an anonymous letter to Moabdar, the infamous recourse of sordid spirits, who are the objects of universal contempt. But in this case an affair of the last importance, because this letter tallied with the baneful suggestions that the monarch had conceived. In short, 
His thoughts were now wholly bent upon revenge. He determined to poison Astarte on a certain night, and to have Zadig strangled by break of day. Orders for that purpose were expressly given to a merciless inhuman eunuch, the ready executioner of his vengeance. At that critical juncture there happened to be a dwarf who was dumb, but not deaf, in the king's apartment. Nobody regarded him. He was an eye and ear witness to all that passed, and yet no more suspected than any irrational domestic animal. This little dwarf had conceived a peculiar regard for Astarte and Zadig. He heard with equal horror and surprise the king's orders to destroy them both. But how to prevent those orders from being put into execution, as the time was so short, was all his concern. He could not write, tis true, but he had luckily learnt to draw, and take a likeness. He spent a good part of the night in delineating with crayons, on a piece of paper, the imminent danger that thus attended the queen. In one corner he represented the king, highly incensed, and giving his cruel eunuch the fatal orders. In another, a bowl and a cord upon a table. In the centre was the queen, expiring in the arms of her maids of honour, with Zadig strangled and laid dead at her feet. In the horizon was the rising sun, to denote that this execrable scene was to be exhibited by break of day. No sooner was his design finished, but he ran with it to one of Astarte's female favourites, then in waiting, called her up, and gave her to understand that she must carry the draught to Astarte that very moment. In the meantime, the queen's attendants, though it was dead of night, knocked at the door of Zadig's apartment waked him and delivered into his hands a billet from the queen. At first he could not well tell whether he was only in a dream or not, but soon read the letter, with a trembling hand and a heavy heart. Words can't express his surprise, and the agonies of despair which he was in upon his perusal of the contents. Fly, said she, dear Zadig, this very moment, for your life's in the utmost danger. Fly, dear Zadig, I conjure you, in the name of that fatal passion, with which I have long struggled, and which I now venture to discover, as I am to make atonement for it, in a few moments, by the loss of my life. Though I am conscious to myself of my innocence, I find I am to feel the weight of my husband's resentment, and die the death of a traitor. Zadig was scarce able to speak. He ordered his friend Kador to be instantly called and gave him the letter the moment he came, without opening his lips. Kador pressed him to regard the contents, and to make the best of his way to Memphis. If you presume, said he, to have an interview with Her Majesty first, you inevitably hasten her execution, or if you wait upon the king, the fatal consequence will be the same. I'll prevent her unhappy fate, if possible. You follow but your own. I'll give it out that you are gone to the Indies. I'll wait on you as soon as the hurricane is blown over, and I'll let you know all that occurs material in Babylon. Cador that instant ordered two of the fleetest dromedaries that could be got to be in readiness at a private back door belonging to the court. He helped Zadik to mount his beast, though ready to drop into the earth. He had but one trusty servant to attend him, and Cador, overwhelmed with grief, soon lost sight of his dearly beloved friend. 
this illustrious fugitive soon reached the summit of a little hill that afforded him a fair prospect of the whole city of babylon but turning his eyes back towards the queen's palace he fainted away and when he had recovered his senses he drowned his eyes in a flood of tears and with impatience wished for death to conclude after he had reflected with horror on the deplorable fate of the most amiable creature in the universe and of the most meritorious queen that ever lived he for a moment commanded his passion and with a sigh made the following exclamations what is this mortal life o virtue virtue of what service hast thou been to me two young ladies a mistress and a wife have proved false to me a third who is perfectly innocent and ten thousand times handsomer than either of them has suffered death tis probable before this on my account all the acts of benevolence which i have shown have been the foundation of my sorrows and i have been only raised to the highest spoke of fortune's wheel for no other purpose than to be tumbled down with the greater force had i been as abandoned as some miscreants are i had like them been happy his head thus overwhelmed with these melancholy reflections his eyes thus sunk in his head and his meagre cheeks all pale and languid and in a word his very soul thus plunged in the abyss of deep despair, he pursued his journey towards Egypt. End of chapter 7